It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here and to be with you today, to see many familiar faces, those who uh, once were my fellow congregants here in this place for so many years, and to see many new faces, those who uh, were not here the five years ago when I uh, moved away. And so I'm glad to see each and every one of you here today, and I'm thankful to be able to be here and to be with you. This morning, we're going to take our reading from Matthew, the 22nd chapter. And I'll have the scripture up here on the screen. And all the verses, unless otherwise marked, will be from the New King James Version here on the screen. Now, the context of this scene is Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's at the temple. And this occurs just three days before he goes to the cross, during the final week of his life on earth, the week of the Passover. And this particular exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees comes at the end or towards the end of a lengthy day where Jesus answered questions from the audience. And now after he's answered several questions, he turns to ask a question of his own. And so we'll read together in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. We're going to look at this exchange and consider the question asked by the Savior, what about the Christ? The Bible is not a history textbook, but it does contain loads of historical information. This information was recorded by Bible writers not for the purpose of teaching World Civ 101, but primarily to trace God's working in the world. This is especially demonstrated in the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means origin or beginning. The Hebrew title given to the first book of Moses is Bereshith, which means in the beginning or at the first. And through Genesis, uh, though it's filled with doctrine, primarily Moses is writing during the wilderness wandering to inform and remind the recently emancipated Israelites of their heritage and what brought them to where they are and where they're going, the promised land of Canaan. When you examine Genesis, you find that there are several themes repeated over and over in its 50 chapters. One of those themes is that of genealogies. In fact, some have suggested that maybe the book should be called Toldeth, which is the Hebrew word for genealogy or generations, because that word begins every new section in the book. In Genesis 2 and verse 4, we read, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Genesis 6.9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Genesis 10.1, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Genesis 11.27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Genesis 25.19, this is the genealogy of Isaac. And Genesis 37.2, these are the generations of Jacob. By recording these genealogies, Moses is showing where the Israelites 
Israelites originated. He's recording the continuity of human history. He's setting the historical background of Israel's national identity. And he's tracing the passing of promises. One of the other great themes of the book of Genesis is the idea of covenant fulfillment. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he promised him that he would lead him to a great land and he would give that land to him, that he would make him a great nation and also that from his lineage all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we know that promise is the promise of the Messiah. That promise would then pass from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael. From Isaac, it would pass to Jacob, not Esau. And from Jacob, it would pass not to his firstborn Reuben or to Simeon or to Levi, but it would pass to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And then if we fast forward beyond the book of Genesis and beyond the Exodus uh, into the wilderness wanderings and beyond into the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, and we fast forward through the times of the judges, we come to the golden age of Israel, the age of the United Kingdom. And there in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, the Bible records, guess what? Another genealogy. And the purpose here is in part to show that one of the descendants of Judah, to whom that Abrahamic promise passed, is a man named David. David was Israel's second king, chosen to replace the rebellious Saul. During the reign of David and Solomon, his son, Israel was at its most powerful, its most majestic, it's most influential. And not only that, but because David was a righteous man, God made him some promises. Now, there are many, many passages in the Old Testament which look forward to the Messiah, and many of them mention the fact that the Messiah would descend from David. For example, a child will be born to take the throne of David, Isaiah 9. God's blessings will be on the rod from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11. A king will come from the branch of David, Jeremiah 23. And the one to be ruler in Israel will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Micah 5 and verse 2. And so on that day, during the final week of the Lord's life here on earth, as Jesus stood arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians over all manner of issues, Jesus fielded some complicated questions. He fielded a question about whether it was right or not to pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, he fielded a question about a woman who had been married seven times and they wanted to know in the resurrection who would she be married to. He fielded a question about which commandment was the greatest of all commandments. These were hot-button issues. These were issues which were being debated and argued over amongst the Jews. These were complicated questions. And so then when Jesus steps up and he asks his question, he asked maybe what could have been the simplest question of all. From whom is the Messiah to descend? Whose son is he? 
And it seems that they unite together, this audience which had been divided all day long, to answer this silly question, well, he's the son of David, of course. And they were right. They were correct. There is a reason that both Matthew and Luke include genealogies in their Gospels. It's not just to fill space, but in those genealogies, rather, the Apostle and Luke uh, both record this great lineage. Matthew records the lineage from Abraham to David to Jesus. Luke goes all the way back to Adam and traces his genealogy to Jesus, showing that the Messiah is not just the Messiah for the Jews, but he's a Messiah for all the descendants of Adam, for all people of all nations. During the lifetime of Jesus and his time on earth, no one ever challenged that he was descended of David. No one ever questioned or uh, challenged his Davidic ancestry. Before Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, the records and genealogies of the Jews were meticulously kept. At any point during Jesus' preaching career, any Israelite could have gone into Jerusalem and gone down to the Hall of Records and looked up the information about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary. And if at no other time in his ministry, certainly someone would have done that during the final week, the Passover week. Because just two days before Jesus asked his question, Jesus had rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey in the triumph entry. He'd been gone from Jerusalem for months, and now he's come back for the Passover week. And when he rides into town, listen to what they say about him. Matthew 21, verse 9, the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's what they said. They said that to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark says in Mark 11, 9 and 10, uh, those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The next day, when Jesus cleansed the temple, the Bible says that some children cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And of course, the priests and scribes were indignant at that. I think it's easy for us to assume then that somebody did some checking. If Jesus was being heralded as the son of David, a quick record inspection could have shown whether this was true or false. Yet no one challenged his ancestry. So I think that it can be deduced that they all believe that he was a descendant of the great king. But so what? So what? Who knows how many hundreds or thousands of Israelites who were living at this time had royal blood coursing through their veins? Who knows how many of them were the offspring of David? Is that enough to make somebody the Messiah? Well, of course not. And this is the point Jesus is about to drive home. In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 43, Jesus said, How then does David say in the Spirit, Lord, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? The question Jesus essentially asks is, how can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? That's the question. How can the Messiah be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? Jesus quotes here from the 110th Psalm, which is a highly messianic psalm. David wrote the psalm in the first person, and it begins by saying, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the first word there in the Old Testament, the 110th Psalm for Lord, is the sacred name of God. That's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. You tell them, I am sent you. That's the name of the Lord. But the second Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, is the word Adonai. And that's a, a word that means ruler or master. It's the most common title given to God. As in Daniel 5.23, when God is called the Lord, the ruler of heaven. So David is writing in the spirit, which means by inspiration, and he wrote that the Lord God said to David's Lord, the mighty ruler, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice that the Messiah is not just called Lord, but also he sits at God's right hand and he tramples his enemies underfoot. This is the same psalm that's quoted by the Hebrew writer when it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is about Jesus. And so if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. You see, friends, the Jews were like many people of today. Many people hold some truth about Jesus, but their view of him is insufficient in one way or another. The Jews were right in that they knew the Messiah would descend from David. But they missed all the Old Testament passages that taught that the Messiah would be more than just a man. They failed to see the Messiah would also be the Son of God. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is to look at some common views about Jesus today. Some common ways that people see Jesus today. And we're going to ask the question if that is accurate according to the scripture or if there's something inadequate about that view. And the first view may be a bit surprising to you, but the first view that I want to talk about this morning is the Islamic view of Jesus. Did you know that Muslims believe that Jesus was one of 25 prophets sent by Allah into the world to reveal heaven's message to mankind. In the Quran, the fifth chapter and the 46th verse, it says, and in their footsteps, we sent Jesus, the son of Mary, confirming the law that had come before him. We sent him the gospel, therein was guidance and light, and the confirmation of the law that had come before him, a guidance and an admonition to those who fear Allah. The Quran praises Jesus as one of the finest prophets to ever walk the earth. 
He was one who held forth truth to a reprobate people who had rejected his message. Jesus, along with Muhammad, according to Islamic belief, will stand together with Allah and judge the world. Now, there are some people today who laud the Muslim belief concerning Jesus. They're impressed that Muslims have such a high view of him as a prophet and even believe that certain types of religious fellowship can be extended by Christian people to Muslims because of their common beliefs. But friends, this is wrong. And let me give you just one reason why it's wrong. Jesus was, of course, a prophet sent by God to reveal truth. That's correct. They have one truth about Jesus, but we know that he was so much more than that. He was God's son. Muslims deny the deity of Christ. They also deny that he was crucified and that he died a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Now, friends, to deny this is to deny the gospel because Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Islamic view falls short because they deny the cornerstone of the gospel. But number two, let me talk about another view with you for a minute, and that's the liberal view. Now, we use the word liberal in a broad sense today, but historically, what's known as theological liberalism or Protestant liberalism was a movement that began in the 19th century, and it was rooted in the philosophies of men like Immanuel Kant and the religious teachings of this man, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And basically, this movement, which is still very common today, is a movement which tries to meld religious uh, Christian convictions with scientific facts, or what they claim are scientific facts. And so uh, this type of liberalism was known for its denial of the supernatural, its denial of miracles or the inspiration of the Bible, and it promoted a more relativistic or pluralistic or non-doctrinal approach to Christianity. In the liberal view, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a great moral teacher. He had a, a view of ethics that had never been seen in the world before his time. He shined forth in the darkness of Pharisaic Judaism to shed new lights on themes like loving one's neighbor and doing good unto others. He was an incredibly inspiring man. Is that true about Jesus? Yes, of course. Was Jesus a great moral teacher? Absolutely. But of course, he was so much more than that. One of the greatest testimonials concerning the authority of Christ was the fact that he worked miracles. In Acts chapter 2, as the Apostle Peter is preaching on Pentecost, he says in verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You know what I love about this passage? Just a few minutes ago, when Peter and the other apostles started to preach, uh, the crowd blurted out an accusation against them. You remember what it was? The accusation was, these men are drunk. These men are intoxicated. That's what explains what's going on here. And of course, the apostles said, we're not drunk. 
This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Uh, the prophets look forward to this time. But when we get to this part right here in verse 22, and Peter says, God testified that he was with Jesus by signs and wonders and miracles, as you yourselves also know. Nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. Because everybody knew it was true. Nobody could deny it. No one could deny the miracles worked by God in Jesus Christ. As you yourselves also know, you know that it is true, Peter says. To deny the supernatural is to deny the divine authority of Jesus. The greatest of the miraculous attestations of Jesus was the resurrection. Others worked miracles before Jesus and others worked miracles after. But the resurrection makes all the difference. If Jesus arose and is alive, he must be the Son of God. If not, why pay any attention to him? And so back in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is writing about the gospel, he says, we know that these things are true. We know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We know that he was buried and we know that he rose again the third day because all these people saw him. You ever wonder why Paul names all these names in 1 Corinthians 15? This is me reading a little between the lines. But it seems to me that Paul's saying, if you don't believe it, go talk to this person. You don't believe what I'm writing? I'll give you a reference. Here's somebody you can go talk to about it. These people saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And that witness makes all the difference. So this view falls short. And now we go to our third view. And maybe these first two views haven't been too common and people you've encountered today, and that's okay. Because I know you've heard this third view, and I'm going to call it the denominational view. A common mantra in the denominational world today is to say, Jesus is my personal Savior. You ever heard somebody say that? Certainly you have. Certainly you've heard maybe a, a TV or radio preacher who will look into the camera or speak into the microphone and say something like, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? And then that question is usually followed by some uh, unbiblical jargon about inviting Jesus into your heart and reciting a sinner's prayer, such as not found in the New Testament and never is given as an invitational plea in the Bible. Now the phrase itself might have some merit. Jesus is my personal Savior. It identifies the name of Jesus and uh, ascribes to him the title of Savior and that's good. And even the idea of a personal Savior might not be wrong in the fact that each individual must decide whether or not to follow Jesus in faith and obedience. But there are at least two problems with this view, which I think makes, them, makes it insufficient. First of all, it promotes the notion of lone wolf Christianity. You see, Jesus is not merely a personal savior. He's a corporate savior. 
He's a corporate savior. Paul wrote that the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and savior of the body. Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23. Jesus purchased the church with his blood and he is the savior of the body. Not really the same as a personal savior. But the second reason why this view is insufficient is that while it acknowledges that Jesus is a savior, it ignores the fact that Jesus is also Lord. See, this is the nature of so much modern religion. Folks today want to call Jesus Savior, but they don't want to follow him as Lord. They want redemption without repentance. They want forgiveness without faithfulness. They want heaven without the hard work. And so when Peter preached, much different than telling people to accept Jesus as their personal Savior, he told them to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You want to know what to, be, what to do to be saved. That's an answer that you ought to hear. And if you hear something different than that, you're hearing something different than what the apostles preached and what the Bible teaches. The denominational view is insufficient and falls short. One more. One more I want to discuss with you before we close. You've been so patient with me thus far. Hang in there for a few more minutes while we talk about what I'm going to call the cultic view. The cultic view. Now, a few hundred years ago, there were a couple of religious bodies which emerged in America, and uh, they proposed a lot of very bizarre beliefs. And so because of their outrageous beliefs, many people label them as a cult. For example, some deny that Sunday is the Christian day of worship. Some deny that God is eternal. Some deny that Jesus is God. They claim that Jesus was a created being and that before the universe was created, God created Jesus and then through Jesus, he made the rest of creation. Now, it's important to note that those who believe this about Jesus, that he was a created being, will still call Jesus the son of God. But they mean something very different by that. See, if you ever have a chance to speak with a Jehovah's Witness, you'll discover that they use a lot of the same words you use, but they're playing by a different dictionary. They have a different understanding of what those words mean. And so when they say Jesus is the Son of God, they mean something different than you mean when you say that. Can Jesus be called the Son of God if, he, if one believes that he is not actually God? That's the question here. Can Jesus be called the Son of God if you don't believe that he is God? Let me say very quickly that there are many passages in the Bible which teach that the Messiah would be God on earth. Let me look at a few with you. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the prophet says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So in prophecy, as Isaiah is given a vision of things to come, he declares that a child will be born, the Messiah will come into the world, and one of his names, one of his titles 
will be that he is mighty God. And so when Matthew writes this in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we have to understand what Isaiah said before it. Matthew wrote concerning Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? God with us. God with us. One more. One more passage. Now look at this one here. This is 2 Peter 1 verse 1. Peter is beginning to write his second letter. And he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now Peter, when he writes this, says that Jesus is God and Savior. If you ever have an opportunity to study with someone who's a Jehovah's Witness, one thing you'll need to discuss is the translation of the Bible they use. They use something called the New World Translation. And the New World Translation is very good at avoiding passages like 2 Peter 1 and verse 1. So look at what they've done here. They said, Simon Peter, slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have acquired faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that might not seem like a major change, but just adding that the sort of makes it seem like there's God and then there's the Savior, Jesus Christ, and these two are not the same people. Is that kind of what it, that's how you would read it, wouldn't you? But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that this the isn't in the Greek Bible. How do I know that? Because there's the Greek right there. So we have in diaphosune to theo hemon. That's this right here. Uh, the righteousness of our God. The righteousness of our God. Then look here. And Savior Jesus Christ. There's no the. There's no the. This right here, they just threw it in. It's not there. And that's something you'll have to deal with if you ever have an opportunity to study with someone who's a Jehovah's Witness. The Bible affirms that Jesus is God and Savior. The fact that he was begotten of the Father speaks of his incarnation when he was born into a human body. And so this view that says Jesus is the Son of God, but denies that he is God, falls short. What do you think about the Christ this morning? Was he a great prophet in a long series of prophets? Was he an extraordinary moral and ethical teacher? Was he a personal savior? Was he the begotten Son of God? Was he the Son of David? Yes, he was all these. And more. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the first and the last and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his glory. He is the Christ, the son of the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. What about you today? What do you believe about Jesus? Are you ready today to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith? We already read what Peter said to those who were pricked in their hearts and interested in knowing what they needed to do to be saved. They had uh, declared their faith in Christ. And so Peter turned to them and said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you're here today and you've not done that. Jesus himself said while he was still on the earth, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. In Mark 16 and verse 16, if you're ready to come to Christ and obey the gospel today, we are here for you. We're here to help you in any way that we can. We can baptize you into Christ today. We want to do anything we can to help you to come to the Lord. So if you're ready to do that, we ask you to come forward while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.